pause, renew, next. A podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and friends, this is the last episode of season five. As always, I'm so thankful that you're here with me today. And as always, I'm so thankful for the amazing guest I've gotten a chance to talk to this season. And today's episode is no different. It is a joy to bring back a guest who's been here before. Her name is Melissa Corkum. She was on the podcast a couple of years ago to talk about connected parenting and the Enneagram. And in today's podcast, she's back to talk about a book that she recently co-authored called Reclaim Compassion, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Blocked Care with Neuroscience and Faith. Melissa and her co-author, Lisa Qualls, run a ministry together called The Adoption Connection, and they have a podcast by the same name. The subject of their book is Blocked Care, and in today's episode, we're going to be diving into that subject. And this conversation is the perfect addendum to our series on attachment. If you've never heard of blocked care before, you're not alone. I recently heard about it myself, but I'm so thankful that there is a name for this phenomenon. In brief, blocked care happens when there's not reciprocity in a relationship, when our nervous systems get so overwhelmed by the constant trauma or big behaviors, or we're giving, 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 but not getting things in return. When that happens, there's a self-protective strategy that happens where we kind of shut down in the relationship and we're not able to connect in the same way. In parenting, this looks like often not having joy or delight or even wanting to go through the motions of the parenting. It can get really difficult. Blocked care happens very often in adoption and foster care, but it can also happen in so many other arenas. So if you hear us talk about adoption today and you're not an adoptive parent, this conversation may still be helpful to you. I'm so thankful to Melissa and Lisa for their work and what they're doing to bring more awareness to this issue. And I hope that this conversation is educational as well as helpful. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Well, Melissa, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. I know you've been with us before, but it's been a long time. So would you like to introduce yourself? Just whatever you'd like people to know about you, your ministry, what you do. Yeah, well, it does. It feels like a lifetime ago, Ginny. (laughs) (laughs) So much life has happened. But uh, thanks for having me back. My name is Melissa Corkum. I live with my husband, Patrick, in Maryland, and we have six kids, four through adoption, two through birth. We have two grandkids, and I am an adoptee and an an adoptive mom, obviously, and my passion is really for serving adoptees and their families, and I co-founded the Adoption Connection with Lisa Qualls, and we were hoping that she would be able to join us today, but uh, all the things didn't align. And yeah, so at the Adoption Connection, we really serve uh, discouraged adoptive families and really try to bring as much compassion as we can uh, from all parts of the adoption triad, but also from our lived experience. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you back. I am a little bummed we couldn't talk to Lisa, but I'm hoping maybe, who knows, if I keep having you every couple of years, eventually I'll get to talk to Lisa too. (laughs) But you guys have an amazing ministry together. And I think, well, you've been making the circuits lately because you recently wrote a new book, which we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, can you share a little bit about how you, you and Lisa came to found the Adoption Connection or what your background is together in adoption and serving that population? 
It's a funny story. We joke that we did exactly what we have been telling our teenagers never to do, which is meet someone on the internet, make friends with them, and then form a legal relationship before ever meeting in person. <laughs> so we were both adoption bloggers. Um, she had the real privilege of speaking and blogging with Dr. Purvis and wrote The Connected Parent with her. Um, before she passed. And that came out in July of 2020. And back in like 2018, I started dabbling in the world of podcasting and didn't really know what I was doing or I didn't really have a purpose. And I had had Lisa on my podcast to tell her story as a birth mom, which she had, hadn't really done. And then I started hearing her in her newsletter talk about starting a podcast, an adoption podcast. And I thought, man, it would be great if we could pair up. I, She had kind of the vision and I had all the technical know-how. <laughs> and as we started sharing our stories and getting to know each other better, we realized that we both as adoptive parents had experienced a gap in post-adoption resources. And then, but we also realized that we had this perspective, her as a birth mom and me as a, an adoptee, that we could kind of really round out our perspective in ways that not all adoptive parents can do. And so it started as a podcast and our ideas just grew and grew and grew. And so now we have um, a full-on coaching community and we still have the podcast and have written some books and have kind of grown our services to adoptees. So we do some adoptee support groups and yeah, it's just been a wild ride. I think we really just thought we'd start a podcast and then here we are five years later and um, super, super honored and privileged to do the work that we do with families and that they trust us with their stories. Well, we're thankful too, because you guys are providing like really, really helpful and good understanding in the world of things that have been maybe broached by professionals, but not in a way that they truly get on the other end of it. And I think you guys are doing a great job of both being professional and really getting the other side of the lived experience of it. So I'm really excited and thankful for this new book that you guys have put out called Reclaim Compassion, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Blocked Care with Neuroscience and Faith. We are going to jump in to talk about blocked care. But before we do that, I was just wanting to share with you and the listeners, um, I was meeting a friend for breakfast a few months ago, and I was telling her that on my podcast, I was about to do a series on attachment. Well, she's also a therapist, a licensed therapist, and she was like, Jenny, I think that's great. I cannot wait to listen to that. But you know what I really want to listen to? And I was like, what? She said, I'm kind of interested in knowing what happens when you have secure attachment as a parent but you're parenting a child from trauma or a child that comes from a hard place or who is neurodivergent. And in the end, you don't feel secure anymore. What about that? And I was like, um, I'm curious about that too. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to have to really do some research on that. <laughs> uh, we'll see if we get to that on the podcast, but somehow that's kind of where we've ended up as a God thing, because that's what you're writing about in a, in a way. That's not exactly what it is, but in a way, that's kind of what it is. So can we talk about blocked care for a minute? Can you define what blocked care is and how it develops? 
Yeah. So blocked care is a subconscious mechanism in a parent's nervous system. And I think subconscious is the really important word there. We'll swing back around to that. But it happens when a parent's nervous system is overwhelmed with stress. And that could be a lot of different things, but we find often that it's overwhelmed with the stresses of actually parenting, whether your child is neurodivergent or has big behaviors because of their lack of felt safety, because of their early adverse experiences, whatever that looks like. If they just have a lot of high needs, then our nervous system starts self-protecting itself. And a lot of the things that allow us to be curious and compassionate and empathetic, all of those things start to shut down. And we can often, if we're in block care, still do the motions of parenting. So we're still putting food on the table. We're still driving kids to school. We're still helping with homework, but we're kind of doing it maybe in my case with a little bit more sarcasm, (laughs) you know, louder words. Um, And we really, it, it kind of takes the joy out of parenting. Um, and it feels like a block, like like a block to that sweet spot of reciprocal relationship that we may be used to, or um, maybe has always felt elusive in our parenting journey. Yeah. I have so much that I want to dive into with that. (laughs) And I had questions for you and Lisa together, but since she's not here, because I'm an adoptive parent too, I may in like parts fill in some of my own lived experience as well with some of this, with gentle care, obviously, because I want to keep my kids safe from the public world and their stories. But I know that you've lived this as well as has Lisa, but can you, can you share about how you guys stumbled upon this term or this as a phenomenon? Yeah. So I think that's a really important question because it is not our term. We did not coin it. I first learned about it reading Brain-Based Parenting by Jonathan Balin and Dan Hughes. And that is not the first book I would, if you've never read the two of them, that is not the book I would recommend jumping into. It's really sciencey. It's really heady. And so if you are in blocked care or you're feeling overwhelmed, uh, probably not a good place to start. I thought that their book, um, Building the Bonds of Attachment, I don't know if that's both of them or just Dan Hughes, was a little bit easier of a read. And that book addresses blocked care, not um, in a way that defines it so clearly, but it's definitely present. And I think it's used in name there. But they were as far as I know, the first ones to name it, which is huge. And I remember calling Lisa and we were already working through some of these feelings and the realities of parents who are having trouble liking their kids. These th- these parents were starting to you know, whisper these things that were so shameful and they weren't sure if anyone else understood. We had both started to write and speak about it just a tiny little bit but really didn't have a name for it. We just had these like big words. Like I think um, the breakout Lisa was working on when I called her was um, when your heart feels trampled. (laughs) And I said, I said, I just found a term that I think names what we've been talking around and about. Um, And she shared on other, at other times when we've talked about this, that like just having words like made her teary, you know, like it's that thing where you realize, man, if there's a word 
for this, then other people are experiencing it because enough other people know about it to have defined and memed it. Mm-hmm. So I know generally you're talking to adoptive parents, but this is a thing that can happen to people that have not adopted as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I just so want to be really clear about that for the listeners as well. The the big thing is that um, our nervous system is overwhelmed. And so obviously that can happen in whatever kind of parenting you're taking part of. And when we talk about, there's four different types of blocked care that we talk about in the book. And one is child-specific blocked care. And one of the reasons that that can happen is a child has big behaviors or a child has what Balin and Hughes call blocked trust, which goes back to that attachment stuff. Really, um, we all know about blocked trust. It's basically insecure attachment, right? Or, or a variety of something on that attachment spectrum. And But also child-specific blocked care can happen if a child is neurodiverse and maybe they are just um, incapable of giving us the type of social interaction that our body is expecting. Um, one of our kids is on the autism spectrum. And so his um, interactions are a little bit stiffer. They're a little bit more awkward. And, you know, our body, like our nervous systems, if we're not really intentional, like react to that. It's like, oh, I don't, you know, that doesn't feel great. Um, and so, or it could be um, the opposite sometimes is true too. If we maybe have a more dismissive attachment style and we have a child who's really clingy and so they are, um, it's not that they're rejecting us, but they are just wanting us all the time for everything, then we can feel those walls of blocked care starting to come up. We're like, our nervous system, our attachment system is like, whoa, you know, that's not how I do a relationship, you know? So I think- um, your right attachment has a lot to do with blocked care. Yeah. So in your book, you have whole chapters about shame and grief specifically. So I wanted to spend some time talking about those. Although, you know, as an aside, in our last time together, we talked about the Enneagram and you're an Enneagram seven. <laughs> so I know that those are not like feelings that you wallow in greatly, probably. Yeah. <laughs> All those negative <laughs> emotions. But um Nevertheless, they are a big part of the journey through blocked care, I think. So I wondered if we could kind of talk a little bit about, about those two things and how they show up as part of being a parent who's dealing with blocked care. And I'm saying this because I think there's a safety to being vulnerable um, and hearing other people, especially around this thing. There is a lot of shame attached because you hear other parents say wonderful things about their kids. It looks like they're delighting in their kids. Probably people have just listened to my podcast thinking that they should be delighting in their kids. And then on the inside, they might be thinking, but I don't even like my kids right now. <laughs> that doesn't feel good as a parent. So um, for those who are listening today who might be experiencing difficulty in parenting kids from hard places, can you talk about your own grief and shame or you know, generally you and Lisa together, what you've noticed with people that you work with? Yeah. So the interesting thing about grief is a lot of us are familiar with really tangible grief and loss. Um, like if we, if a loved one dies, then we think, oh, well, of course you're going to grieve, you know, but there's these other parts of what we call disenfranchised grief. Well, we didn't call it. Someone else named it. Right. But, you know, 
<laughs> disenfranchised grief and ambiguous loss. And these are things where maybe the loss is not as defined. And so adoption is full of that, right? Where we, um, like for instance, you know, as an adoptee, I think for a long time, I assumed that my loss of my birth mom was pretty permanent. And, um, you know, I don't know anything about my birth family, but now with like 23 and me and technology and so many things, that door is kind of like creaking open. It's like, well, that's a loss that I had kind of tucked away, but you know, it could come back, you know, like trying to walk through what that looks like or having the possibility of a connection and then losing that, like that's a loss, um, a loss of culture in our family. In the book we talk about, we have parents do an exercise where we ask them to name expectations they had coming into parenthood or adoption and then list kind of what their reality is now. And inevitably there's a gap there between what we thought it would be like to bring a child into our family who wasn't born to us. Um, I know that for me, our first adoption was um, our son from Korea. And I thought I'm a Korean adoptee. He's a Korean adoptee. Half our family is Korean adoptees. Like it'll all be fine. We'll just, you know, sweep him right in and we know how to do adoption. And of course this was, I knew nothing about developmental trauma or prenatal exposure or any of those things. Right. And so we had this expectation that we were going to just sweep him in. And I assumed there would be an adjustment period, but I figured it would be probably months, not years, and that we would just kind of move right along. And that is not what has happened, you know? And so we talk in the book about anytime there's a gap between your expectations and then what happens in reality, right? And this happens all the time, not just in our parenting journeys. Like there's something to grieve there. Like we had this thought and as an Enneagram seven, who's future focused, like I live for anticipation, right? So I'm always <laughs> thinking about the future, right? I've I've created the future before it ever happens. And then when I get to the future and it's not what I expect it to be, if I don't recognize those losses, then that's another place where resentment can build up, where blocked care can set in. So that's the grief part. I think the shame part is um, related, right? A lot of times people will feel shame that there is a gap between their expectations and realities. Sometimes we falsely come in thinking we have more control over the situation than we actually do. And so when it turns out differently than we imagined, we blame ourselves. Um, we wonder what's wrong with us. Uh, I know you can probably relate to this as someone in the professional space in adoption and foster care, someone who has you know, a lot of knowledge and has been trained in a lot of things. I know what the right things are to do. And so to know that you know, and then to not do them, like that's where the shame, <laughs> that's where shame happens for me, right? Where you think, um, like what we went through a really, really hard season with one of our kids from Ethiopia and I had defined success all wrong. So like there were lots of things out of alignment. And I also falsely assumed that because we were empowered to connect parent trainers, which is now the cultivate connection material, um, because we were trained in that, then we would know what to do. We would do it. And then like, we wouldn't have, we shouldn't be having the upheaval and the craziness that was happening in our family. And so I think there's a lot of shame around like being a professional in this space and then still identifying so much as the parents <laughs> in this space. Yes. And amen 
just across the board. Yes. So um, because I'm an Enneagram 2 and I don't reframe nicely and move on quickly from things, um, I think, and because I live in the shame triad, shame comes for me every day on every front. But certainly mom guilt, I think, is probably the worst. Um, And I agree about the professional thing. (laughs) Yes. Like I go to work and I help people with this stuff and then I come home and can't seem to keep it together. What's wrong? (laughs) That's it's a, a, it's, yes. it's a attachment, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we're real humans, flawed humans who are not Jesus. Yeah. So that's a thing. Um, but also, as far as the shame part goes or the grief part, um, as an Enneagram too, my heart need is to be wanted and loved. And then I have, you know, I've adopted kids and even sometimes my biological kids don't match up to what I necessarily expected was going to be the case or that they don't even treat me like they really want me around <laughs> or that they appreciate any of the things that I'm doing and, you know, uh, yeah. providing. It only gets um, worse as they get older, Jenny. I know. I know. Yeah. They need I'm getting us less there. and less and less. <laughs> I'm getting there. And so I don't want to go into detail about the things, you know, that I've lived and experienced, except to say that I think all these are true across the board for anybody who's experiencing blocked care. But depending on our personalities, we may feel it slightly differently, depending on our seasons of parenting, depending on our kids themselves, depending, I mean, there's so many different things, but you're exactly right about the grief part. And I don't, I don't know how you move through that without the grief part, because not even acknowledging the gap there, it shows up in our bodies if it doesn't show up in our emotions. So Mm -hmm. it's a thing I feel like when people are feeling really stuck, that's one of the things that hasn't been addressed right? because there's, it's just heavy and it holds us back and it, it keeps us angry and hurt and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. You write in your book, the key to overcoming blocked care and regaining compassion for your child is experiencing what your child also needs, nurture and felt safety. Can you share some of the ways that we can seek nurture and felt safety in our own adult lives? Yeah. So the we wrote the book in three parts. And the third part is all about overcoming blocked care. And we use the term nervous system care instead of self-care because it just feels more accurate. Mm-hmm. It also feels like it doesn't come with decades of emotional baggage around however you've judged or viewed or your relationship with quote unquote self-care. We are built for relationship. We're built to be seen. We're built to be safe. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book are the 10 signs of blocked care. And one of them is that folks begin to isolate themselves for a variety of reasons. It could be the shame, right? They don't want to show their face in public feeling all the shame of I'm such a bad parent. But sometimes it's just straight up practical. Like if you're dealing with big behaviors all day long, or you're in some other crisis, a marriage crisis or a job crisis or whatever, like you just don't have the bandwidth to get yourself out of the house, to show up in public, to make that extra call, to schedule the coffee date with a friend. And so then our entire world as parents becomes like our parent-child relationships because we can't walk away from like, those are relationships that we're, you know, 
quote unquote stuck with, right? Like we still interact with our kids every day, even if we've cut out all the other types of relationships. And so then the feedback loop, right, <laughs> is, um, and especially for someone like an Enneagram 2, Jenny, where like you're looking for affirmation from the relationships around you, you're dependent, like that outlook is dependent on how that reciprocal relationship is going. And if it's rocky or if your child's rejecting you or, and it's certainly not our kids' jobs, right, to affirm us or nurture us or any of those things. But if we've isolated ourselves and the only feedback our nervous system is getting is you're a failure, no one likes you, no one wants you, no one needs you, <laughs> right? And it's hard. It's hard to stay in the game and stay compassionate when that's the only feedback we're getting. And so we have to intentionally bring into that feedback loop, you know, understanding parents, coaches, spiritual directors, caregivers, friends, spouses, whoever that is to say, oh my gosh, you're not crazy. Like I can understand where that would feel awful. Or yeah, like, like I find, I know about myself that if my child has a behavior that just is so crazy, I feel like I look around and I'm like, did anyone else see that? Like, it's not just me, right? Like that really was as crazy as I experienced it. Um, yeah. Cause you feel like you're getting gaslit in a way. Yeah. Cause everybody yeah. else will say, oh, your family's beautiful. I don't know how you do what you do, but your kids are so great. <laughs> They're so well behaved. Or I would take that kid home with me in a heartbeat, you know, and then and you I'm think like, you can have him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, all of that, um, we don't want to live in a vacuum like that. I think that is the breeding ground for shame and blocked care. And yeah, so we need other people to nurture us, to say, I see you, to say, you're great, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and yeah, so we just need other input and that can, we talk about different like buckets of what nervous system care looks like. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about this relational bucket. Like it just can't be us and our kids. It has to be us and other safe relationships to help us because felt safety is relational. Like we're getting cues. So many of our cues of felt safety come from relationships, but they're also coming from inside our bodies. So we have to be thinking about, you know, what's going on physically and um, mindset wise, and then our environment. And the good news is, is all of those things, you know, we don't have control over the relationship we have with our kids. We can influence it, but we ultimately, we don't have control, but we have, we do have control around a lot of other things. And when we can focus on what we can control versus on what we can't, I think that's really, our goal is that it doesn't make parents feel like they have to be or do anymore, but that it's empowering for them to be able to turn their attention to something that feels like it has more return on investment than, you know, pouring resources into our kids and feeling like we're just spinning our wheels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Along with felt safety, I mean, just to be clear, if we're dealing with trauma, which if you are having blocked care to some level, you are living through trauma. Yeah. Well, and post in a post-COVID world, I feel like that gives us all like yes. the permission slip to admit that we've all lived through something traumatic. Yes. Thank you for saying <laughs> that. That's so true. Um, but even if you have a child who's creating a traumatic circumstance there is secondary trauma associated with that. So like, for instance, with my clients in my office that I hear this from, or even in my own lived experience, when something hard happens, our body reacts to that in the moment. 
But then it's looking, it's being hypervigilant after that for if it's going to happen again. And if you live in a situation where the same things keep happening that don't feel like safety in your body, then your body is ramped up to continue to wait for when that's going to happen next. So it can be much more easily triggered by sounds, by situations that feel like something that's happened before in your home or wherever. Um, And so when you say nervous system care, I mean, truly that's what's happening. Like our vagus nerve is looking to keep us safe much more than the average parent because it hasn't felt safe necessarily. So not just are we doing self-care, like taking bubble baths, although that might be a part of it, but real, real true. Like, how do I feel safe in my body, in my space, in my relationships, like the nitty gritty of what that feels like? Yeah. Yeah. Which I know that you've had a lot of trauma training as well, right? Yeah. And you mentioned polyvagal theory and reference the vagal nerve. And so much came into focus for me when I discovered polyvagal theory and that those words have been really helpful in bringing practicality to what nervous system care is in a way that um, I think takes some of the shame out of, you know, takes the shame out of why we act certain ways when we can understand how our nervous system is wired and how much our vagus nerve is really driving the bus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So as we're talking about regaining compassion for our kids, which hopefully is the end goal in the end, regaining some joy in parenting even, I think one of the things that I talk about with my clients and on my podcast a lot is getting self-compassion as well. And I think you guys also talk about that. And so even understanding what our bodies have been through or what our souls have been through, you know. I think that that is a part of regaining compassion as well, just like you talked about understanding what's going on, having words for it. Yeah. I mean, I think back to when I first started working with parents and before I understood all of this and because I'm so cognitively like oriented to the world in my thinking space, um, it was so easy for me to ignore the parent experience and just say like, oh, well, perhaps, have you tried to compromise lately? Have you tried, you know, like it was such pat, um, shallow, um, not helpful advice, but (laughs) we've come so far. But what I realized, you know, what we both realized as we were coming into this space of serving parents was that we had to turn the lens towards parents and their own nervous systems. And so we have a roadmap that we walk parents through in our coaching community. And it starts with reclaiming compassion for themselves because without that piece, they don't even want to start the second half of the roadmap, which is reclaiming compassion for their child, (laughs) you know? And so, um, and I think parents are so relieved when they come in because I think they're expecting us to just chastise them for, you should be doing this more. You should be doing that better. You should be connecting better. You should have better eyes with your kids. You should have a better, you know, your voice should be better, whatever the thing is. And we start with like, what brings you joy? Give yourself permission to reclaim joy in your life. Um, get to know what your nervous system needs, why it's doing what it's doing. Um, and that's so disarming for parents to be able to have that self-compassion that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So I work with a lady who's trained in TBRI um, as a therapist. And uh, we were talking about attachment in a recent staff meeting. And she was talking about how she always tells parents when they're swinging their kids, make sure they're making eye contact and like showing delight in their face and stuff. And I thought, you know, from the other end of that, that is really good advice. Also, there may be days that in your face, you really can't. <laughs> like your delight back. has been <laughs> tapped out. So maybe from the back that day, like push from yeah. the back, feeling your own, your own. I think there's so much advice in the world, well-meaning advice, professional advice that we're, we're taking in as good adoptive parents trying to do the best that we possibly can for our kids. And maybe we can't do all of it all the time. So knowing what our own limits are, doing the best that we can, having compassion for ourselves, all that stuff. So I appreciate this book so much. And I really think it would be, I like the way that you broke it down into not reading it fast, because I think you could and you'd skip a lot that way, but breaking it down into exercises so you can actually do it in small chunks where we can begin to actually practice it. And it might even be helpful in groups. Are you, are you hearing it being done that way a lot? Yeah. Um, Life in the Trinity ministry, which is one of my favorite Enneagram resources, they have the the best tagline. And if we were allowed to steal people's taglines, we would totally steal this one. But it um, their tagline is individual work that cannot be done alone. And I, I really feel like that's so true of Blot's care work. Like ultimately it's on, uh, right? It's our responsibility as a parent to do our own work. And because of the shame that we talked about, it is so much more powerful and more effective to be done in groups. And mm. so we actually published a really short um, leader group guide to help book group leaders. Like if they want to get a neighborhood group together or through their church or their agency, whatever to facilitate like, you know, simple discussion questions and, and what is, what are the, what does the nitty gritty of that look like? It's a really easy book to do in groups because we kind of wrote it to be done in 10 weeks, like the 10 chapters. And like you mentioned, there's practical exercises and reflections and things to do to kind of digest each chapter at the end. And there's five for each chapter. So in our heads, we were thinking, you know, like every, you know, five days a week, like the weekdays or whatever. Um, and then also our next project is to take the information from the book and turn it into a group curriculum that is, um, not faith-based because we want it to be accessible for agencies. And that is not as adoption specific. It has a lot more caveats for um, families with kids with mental health diagnoses, neurodivergence, um, just parents in general. And so that'll be available later this summer. um, Oh, I'm so happy about that because I have already started telling people about this book and then saying it's written for adoptive parents. But I'm telling you, if you just take that part out, it fits your situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're working on we're working on it. And um, we hemmed and hawed over how to how specific to make this book. And we really felt like um, we needed to write the first version with our faith in it because it's been such a huge part of how we've come into this journey and made it through mostly to the other side. Um, and, uh, we are the adoption connection, like adoption is our passion and that's the main audience that we reach. But, um, we do recognize that this is not specific to adoptive families, obviously not specific to 
Christian families and the nervous system care parts. Um, there's so much in polyvagal theory that doesn't require us to have faith or the spirituality part. Um, and so that's the next step is to really just make it more accessible for the rest of the world. And it's coming, it's coming soon. And we're hoping to roll it out um, at a at a couple of conferences this summer. And so, yeah, it, we recognize the bigger need and um, we'll step in there as long as there's space and invitation. Man, I'm so excited for both of you. And I mean, I really think of all the times in the world this could be rolling out. This is the time because there's a tidal wave, I think, of burnout in parenting, in life, just period, because of all the things everybody's been through for the last however many years. Um, so you're going to be reaching a lot of people. I'm really thankful for it. Okay, I love to talk about what well, we call it soul care, self care on this podcast. But since we're talking about nervous system, care. Um, can you share like lately, what does some of, what are some of your ways of taking care of yourself? I'm been convinced, um, that centering prayer or meditation. So just sitting in kind of stillness and silence is good for us all. And it's hard. It took me a long time to be convinced and I'm not very good at it, but that is, um, an important part of what I strive to do. Um, Rhythmic and repetitive movement. We talk about that in the book, and that came out of um, that Bruce Perry's work, I think so. Um, and so, exercise or a walk, like pretty much every day, like like religion, like it's my job. Like I will make room for a thirty minute walk in whatever the weather is, if I can, if I can at all make it possible. Um, and I love dabbling in like just other body work stuff. So uh, I'm a safe and sound protocol practitioner. So we offer that here at the Adoption Connection. Personally, I love practicing trauma release exercise. My husband just got me into floating, like some sensory deprivation floats. Um, that's actually been better. Like he loves it for his like mental space. Um, I like it more for physical, like um, physical, like it releases like all the tension in your like back and your joint. Like I'm getting old, Ginny, and my body doesn't do what it used to. I like understand. all the things. I know. <laughs> so um yeah, and and I'll be honest, it takes up a lot of time and space to do that. And a lot of times it feels like I can't or I don't have time. And I think we just have to. Mm -hmm. Like all the other things get have to start to feel smaller so that we can do those things. And they do. Like when we have more space and margin in our nervous system, then we can take on the things that, you know, are stressful, the behaviors that we weren't expecting, all of that stuff, we kind of take in stride more. So the rhythmic and repetitive things, I thought that that was amazing. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me when I was reading, I was like, this makes complete sense from the things that I know about the brain and trauma and all the things, like it just makes a lot of sense with EMDR moving back and forth, just yeah. all the things. But I think it's really cool that you make that a practice for every single day. I think that's really awesome. So besides walking, like what could that look like? Can you share that with people who are listening? Yeah. Bike riding, swimming, even chewing gum, right? Like literally anything that had, like if we think about what regulates our vagal nerve through one of the pathways, like our heart rate and our respiration. And in Bruce Perry's work, he talks about the first thing he does with kids that have come from incredible amounts of trauma is 
figuring out if they can find like the beat in the music. Like I'll never forget like one of his stories. He talks about he he just like the therapeutic thing was to just send him to music class, like help our kids learn how to find rhythm because in that rhythm is is regulation, right? If our heartbeat is rhythmic, we can be regulated. If our breathing is rhythmic, we can be regulated. And so we can induce that in so many different ways um, in our bodies. So like we were talking about swinging earlier, like if you, if you're really struggling to be regulated with your kid and you don't get super motion sick, like I do, like get on the swing next to your kids swing together. Um, But the rhythmic pushing of a child back and forth is great. Um, You know, jump with them on the trampoline. And it's actually, we talk about in the book, the three R's rhythm, Mm -hmm. repetition and relationship. So if you can get rhythm and repetition and do it in a safe relationship, right. Then that's all the more regulating. Like we get the most bang for a buck. Yeah. So walk with a friend. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Rock with your husband on the front porch after dinner. Yeah. With our kids. I love that so much. That's really helpful. Okay. I'm just going to jump in for a second and ask you about the centering prayer because I could not agree more with that. But truly, I think everybody hears this and they think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what I don't know what that actually means. Can you describe what centering prayer for you actually looks like? Like, what do you do like for a certain period of time? Because I think people hear that all the time and they're like, that sounds great. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I mean, at at its simplest, it's getting somewhere that's mostly quiet, getting somewhere comfortable with your body and just practicing stillness and silence as best as you can. Right. And like the, what's the image with like thoughts? Like if you have a thought, like make it like a ship, like it's okay that it comes, but then like try to let it go. And I'm not great at that. Like, I'll be honest. Um, so it's like that. I, that's how Joe Stabile, um, taught it to me, us in our group. Um, and that's how he teaches it, like at Life in the Trinity Ministry. I've heard other people talk about centering prayer, like you can um, focus on one thing, like if you need something to not let the thoughts come and go. So you can have like one single word that you're just kind of breathing in and out over and over again. Um, and that can be helpful, especially as you're kind of learning how to find stillness and silence, not just external physical st- silence, but like silent, like stillness in your mind, silence in your mind. Um, and you know, it's, it's a type of mindfulness and we like the research shows that the, like even just 10 minutes a day, um, makes us less reactive. It makes our kids less, like if we can get our kids to do even a remote amount of this, like it makes our kids less reactive. Like there's so much, there's studies that show that that practice can be more effective than medicating yourself for lack of focus, you know, like there's so many things. And so I just, I'm convinced, um, both by lived experience, but also by the science of the importance of it. And so I don't find it easy and it's certainly, uh, not, I think naturally where, what my soul desires, but the more I do it, the more I desire it because I realize how much peace it brings and, you know, just a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did safe and sound earlier this year. I'm in the protocol. I think they talk about a YouTube video you can watch where there's like a stream and you watch leaves kind of go down the stream and you think of that as being like your thoughts 
Leaves on a Stream, I think is the name of it. You could Google it on YouTube <laughs> for kids. It's helpful to just watch the leaves go. Just like a thought comes in, there it goes. A thought comes in and we just watch it go. <laughs> so, but I agree. It does not come naturally for me either. It's hard for me to be still. I have a lot of energy in my mind, in my body, just in general. <laughs> so yes, but it's so good. It's so helpful. Okay, if you had any encouragement today for a mom or dad who feels really burned out, exhausted, or defeated, uh, what would you want them to know? I think that there's hope. You know, that there is always a season on the other side. We are pretty far into our parenting journey. Um, between Lisa and I, between the two of us, have parented, I don't know, upwards of like 20 kids or so. And we both have grandkids now. We both have launched adult children. We're on the tail end of our parenting journey. Our Both of our youngest kids are both 16. And like, you know, we're like, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And um, we've both been through hell and back. Like, like our experiences are hard, hard, hard. And in the midst of them, in the like eye of the storm, I swore like my life was over. You know, I thought some of the relationships with my kids were over, ruined, um, beyond repair. And both of us have seen like just an incredible amount of healing and redemption over time. We're two generations into this. So as an adoptee, I also have two siblings who are adopted and, you know, we were not like, we did not make it easy for our parents, you know? And so we get to see just in hindsight, how much healing can happen over time. And so we just really encourage parents who are still in it or a couple steps behind us that, you know, there is like the story isn't over until it's over, you know, and as long as we get up for another day, there are things that we can do actively. Um, there are resources out there. I know we created at the Adoption Connection, what we wish had been available when we were really in crisis. And so we're doing the best we can to be give the most hands-on, most practical help um, to families while still being a virtual company. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say that that's it, Like that there is hope, um, regardless of what any other professional or family has told you. Um, there's, there's always more. Thank you so much for that and for being on the podcast. And if people want to, because they will, go out and find your book or any of your resources, where are the best places for them to go? Okay. So the book is called Reclaim Compassion. Um, it's most available on Amazon, uh, both in Kindle and paperback, uh, but it should be available uh, in other, like I looked it up at Barnes and Noble the other day and it's on their website. So like it's on some of the other places, uh, you can definitely have like a local independent bookstore order it for you. And then I mentioned really briefly, um, that there's 10 signs of blocked care. And so we've turned those into a blocked care assessment. It's in the beginning of the book, but in case your folks want to take that and just kind of see like, I don't know. They're talking about this thing. And I think it resonates with me, but I don't really know. Like, and you want a little bit more tangible information. Um, we've made that assessment free for your folks. So if they go to the adoptionconnection.com slash PRN for pause renew next, um, then they can get that for free and take that and just kind of see where they go. And then based on that assessment, we'll give some recommendations um, on resources that they can access from there. 
Thank you so much. That is amazing. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you wanted to say? I didn't give you a chance to. I We always end our podcast with telling parents that they're good parents doing good work. And so I think that's a really great way to end. Thank you. And I'm going to reiterate, if you're listening today, I know you care. <laughs> you are a good parent doing good work. So thank you for that, Melissa. And you too. Thanks again, Melissa, for being on today's podcast episode. It was so good to talk to you again. I'm really thankful for the work that you and Lisa are doing in the world. And I hope, listeners, if this was helpful for you, that you'll listen to it as many times as you need to or share it with other people that you know could benefit. I also hope that you'll go out and get their book, Reclaim Compassion. If you're interested in taking the assessment that Melissa talked about on today's podcast episode, I will link to that in today's show notes as well as links to the other work that they're doing and where you can get their book. Well, you guys, it has been such a privilege and a joy to be with you for another podcast season. You know, if you've been listening to the podcast long, that I take the summers off to revamp, to do my own soul care. That's what we're supposed to be doing after all, right? To spend time with my kids while they're home for the summer. But Lord willing, The podcast will be back the first Tuesday of September. If you're bored in between now and then, and you've missed any podcast episodes, you guys, there's 130 something. You've probably missed a couple. I hope in the next few weeks, as you're missing this podcast, that you can go back and check those out. I will be taking a break off of social media for about a month this summer, but don't worry, I'll be back and I'll be posting some blog posts as well later this summer. So if you're not already following, Pause Renew Next. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pause Renew Next. And the website is pauserenewnext.com. May you be blessed this summer, friends. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause Renew Next. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Jesus.